Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan for another Always More Wednesday episode. Today, we are going to be reading another article like we did last week. And actually, I saved this down in my notes a while ago. And I opened it up and is another, it's another article by Father Dwight Longnecker. If, uh, you guys remember him from last week, we talked about, we read an article from him and it was talking about the unity between Christology, your belief about Jesus, ecclesiology, your belief about the church, and uh, sacramental theology, your belief about the Eucharist, and how the Catholic Church alone uh, has the fullness of all three of those where it's actually unified, whereas outside of the church, your belief, their beliefs about the church and the Eucharist, if they were to apply that to the person of Jesus, actually falls into heresies about Jesus himself. So uh, to receive the fullness of Christianity, the fullness of the incarnate Christ, the fullness of life in Christ and the truth, uh, the belief about Jesus is also applied to Jesus in the Eucharist and the church. Uh, and the Catholic Church alone has that. And Father Dwight Longnecker has an interesting background because he was a Protestant fundamentalist growing up, and then he was an ordained an Anglican priest, and then uh, became a Catholic priest after discovering the fullness of truth in the Catholic Church. And actually, when he was an Anglican priest, he was married and had four or five children. And so when he came into the church, he was still ordained. Uh, he was still a priest. So he's actually a married Catholic priest with a whole family. So um, this article is... It's titled, How Do We Know It's the True Church? Or another way to put it, he goes through these 12 traits of the true church. And so we'll kind of go through this, but he he go and I'll leave it in the show notes if you want to read it in full. But at the beginning of it, he talks about his conversion from Protestant fundamentalism. And then he grew up in independent Bible church. And then he attended the fundamentalist Bob Jones University. And then he later became an Anglican uh, priest in England. And so... This is where his his uh, conversion began. He came into the church in 1995, and in the early 1990s, the Anglican Church was struggling over the question over the ordination of women. So they were going uh, back and forth in the 1990s, and he said, well, I realized that each person had a point from a human point of view, and what Anglicans believe is the three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, and human reason. So... He's seeing that in, while each person had their own tradition, their own human reason, and, and everybody was using scripture, and he saw that he could see in both points. So this is where he considered the question of authority in the church. He realized that the divisions over women's ordination in the Anglican church was no different in essence than every other debate that has divided the thousands of Protestant denominations. Some groups split over women's ordination, others split over whether women should wear hats to church, some split over doctrinal issues, others split over moral issues. Whatever the issue and whatever the split, the basic problem is one of authority. If Christians have sincere disagreement, who decides, right? And then uh, he goes in the article and talking about the wobbly three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, and human reason. And he said he came to realize that this solution also begs the question, just as we have to ask the Protestant who believes in sola scriptura, whose interpretation of scripture, we also have to ask the Anglican whose reason and whose tradition. In the debate over women's ordination, both sides appealed to human reason, scripture, and tradition, and they came up with widely different conclusions. In the end, the Anglican appeal to this three-legged stool relies on individual interpretation, just as the Protestant appeals to sola scriptura. The three-legged stool turns out to be a theological pogo stick, he calls it. And then he talks about a little bit how he uh, he actually met with a Catholic Benedictine uh, monastery. Um, he was an abbey and talking to to him about how you know he was really struggling over this and the the priest helped him see uh the beauty of the catholic church but he said he 
he, he quotes him um, talking about how you have to deny a lesser good in order to apply the greater good because if you deny the greater good then eventually you will lose the lesser good as well so he said he hits the nail on the head is his words led me to explore the basis for authority in the catholic church i already had read and pretty much accepted the scriptural support for the patron ministry in the church i also had come to understand and value the foretold marks of the true church that is one holy catholic and apostolic as I studied and pondered the matter further, however, I saw 12 other traits of the church's authority. These 12 traits and six paired sets helped me to understand how comprehensive and complete the Catholic claims of authority are. I came to realize that other churches and ecclesial bodies might claim some of the traits, but only the Catholic church demonstrated all 12 fully. And then he goes into detail on each of those six pairs where the 12 traits are listed, but I'll list them off just really quickly into the six pairs. So the first pair is that the church is rooted in history and adaptable. The second pair is it is the church is objective and flexible. The third pair is the church is universal and local. The fourth pair is it is the church is intellectually challenging and accessible to the uneducated. The fifth pair is that the church is visible and invisible. And then the, the last pair is the church is both human and divine. And then he concludes it with the church being built upon the rock. So that's a good foundation and a good overview of the six pairs of the 12 traits. And now I'll just kind of, they're short little paragraphs, so I'll read through kind of what he says for each of them. So the first, that first pair and the two traits is that the church is rooted in history and adaptable. So he says this, We have to ask a group of Christians who were deliberating a difficult matter who would need to make their decision. First of all, it seems clear that their decision would have to be made from a historical perspective. It was not good enough to decide complex moral, social, or doctrinal issues based on popularity polls or yesterday's newspaper. To decide difficult questions, a valid authority has to be historical. By this I mean not only does it have to be an understanding of a history, but itself must be rooted in history. In addition, the authority has to show a real continuity with the historical experience of Christianity. The churches that have existed for four or five hundred years can demonstrate this to a degree, but only the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church has a living link with history that goes back to Roman rites, and then through Judaism back to the beginning of human history. But the church is also adaptable. This historical link is essential, but on its own is not sufficient. Historical authority has to be balanced within the ability to be up-to-date. An authority that is only historical becomes ossified and never changes. An authority that cannot be up-to-date is not only rooted in history, it is bound by history. A valid authority structure needs to be flexible and adaptable. Christians face complex modern moral and doctrinal dilemmas. A valid authority system draws on the wisdom of the past to rule properly on the questions of the present. The second pair... Uh, the the next two um, traits are the church's objective and also flexible. And by objective, I mean it needs to be independent of anyone's person's or group's agenda, ideology, philosophy, or self-interest. A valid authority transcends all political, economic, and cultural pressures. The objective quality of the authority system also allows it to make decisions that are unpopular or that go against the spirit of the times and majority opinion. An objective authority is based on certain universal basic assumptions, immutable principles, and observable and undeniable premises. From these objective criteria, the valid authority system builds its teaching. But the church is not only objective, it's also flexible. For the authority to be valid, it cannot 
only rely on abstract principles and objective criteria alone, the valid authority is suitably subjective in applying objective principles. In other words, it understands that the complexities of real life and the pastoral exigencies of helping real people demand a flexible, practical, and down-to-earth application. The Catholic authority system does just that. Through the Code of Canon Law, for example, we are reminded that the law is there to serve the people of God in their quest for salvation. Individual Christians or particular Christian groups often fall into one side of this pair or the other. The rigorists or legalists want everything to be objective and black and white all the time, while the liberals or sentimentalists want every decision to be relative, open-ended, and flexible according to the pastoral needs. Only the Catholic system can hold the two in tension because only the Catholic system has an infallible authority which can keep the two sides balanced. The third pair, the next two traits, is that the church is universal, but it's also local. So the universal, this source of authority needs to be universal not only geographically, but also chronologically. In other words, it transcends national agendas and limitations, but also transcends the cultural trends and intellectual fashions of any particular time. Every church or ecclesial structure other than the Catholic Church is limited, either by its historical foundations or by its cultural and national identity. For example, the Eastern Orthodox find it very hard to transcend their national identity, while the churches of the Reformed tradition struggle to transcend the particular cultural issues that surround their foundation. The national, cultural, and chronological identities of other ecclesial bodies limit their ability to speak with a universal voice. When they do move away from their foundations, they usually find themselves at sea amidst the fashions and trends of the present day. They also find that they lose their distinctive identities when they drift from their foundations. A universal authority system, on the other hand, transcends both chronological and geographical limitations. But the church is also local. So this universal authority, however, needs to be applied in a particular and local way. An authority that is only universal remains vague, abstract, and disincarnate. For a universal authority system to be valid, it must also be expressed locally. Catholicism speaks with a universal voice, but is also as local as St. Patrick's Church and Father Maggie on the corner of Chestnut Street. Not only does the universal church have a local outlet, but the outlet has a certain autonomy which allows it to be flexible in its application of the universal authority. Catholicism travels well, and because of the universal authority structure, it can allow far more varieties of enculturation at the local level than churches which are more bound by the time and place of their foundations. The next pair is that the church is intellectually challenging and is also accessible to the uneducated. So, this intellectual challenging demonstrates the validity of the Catholic authority system includes its intellectual satisfaction and its, and its accessibility. If an authority system is to speak to the complexities of the human situation, then it must be able to hold in its, in its own with the philosophical and intellectual experts in every field of human endeavor. What other ecclesial system can marshal experts from every area of human exper expertise to, to speak authoritatively in matters of faith and morals? Time and again, the Catholic Church has been able to speak with authority about the spiritual dimension of economics, ethics, politics, diplomacy, the arts, and philosophy. This authority must not only be able to hold its own with the intellectual experts in all fields, but it must be intellectually satisfying and coherent within itself. A unified and complete intellectual system must be able to explain the world as it is. Furthermore, this intellectual system must continually develop and be re-expressed, always interpreting ageless truth in a way that is accessible for the age in which it lives. This intellectual system must be an integral and vital part of the religion, while also being large enough to self-criticize.
Only the Catholic faith has such an all-encompassing, impressive system of teaching. But the church isn't just intellectually challenging. It is also accessible to the uneducated. While the authority system must be intellectually top-notch, the religious system must also be accessible to peasants and the illiterate. A religious system that is only intellectual or appeals merely to the literate can speak only for the intellectuals and literate. Some denominations appeal to the simple and unlearned, but have trouble keeping the top minds. Others appeal to the uneducated elite, but less the masses, but lose the masses. Catholicism, on the other hand, is a religion of the greatest minds of history and the religion of ignorant peasants. It is a religion that is a com- that is complex enough for St. Thomas Aquinas and simple enough for St. Joseph Cupertino. It has room at the manger for both the Magi and the shepherds. The next pair is that the church is visible and invisible. First, it's in, it's, it is visible. A Protestant, As a Protestant, I was taught that the church was invisible. That is, it is consisted of all people everywhere who believed in Jesus and that the true members of the church were known to God alone. This is true, and there is, there is more to it than that. Invisibility and visibility make up the fifth paired set of characteristics that mark the true, truly authoritative church. The church is made up of all people everywhere who trust in Christ. However, this characteristic alone is not satisfactory because human beings locked in the visible plane of reality also demand that the church be visible. Even those who believe only in the invisible church belong to a particular church which they attend every Sunday. Those who believe only in the invisible church must conclude that the church they go to doesn't really matter. But the church is also invisible. The Catholic system of authority recognizes both the invisible dimension of the church and the visible. The church is greater than what we can observe, but the church we observe is also greater than we think. The church, inv- the invisible church subsists in the Catholic church, and while you may not be able to identify the extent of the invisible church, you can with certainty point to the Catholic church and say, there is the body of Christ. A few small Protestant denominations claim that their visible church is the true church, but their claims are ludicrous because they have none of the other 12 traits of the true authority. Because it has all these traits, only the Catholic Church can claim to be the living, historical embodiment of the body of Christ on earth. And lastly, the Church is both human and divine. For the Church to speak with authority, it must be both human and divine. An authority that speaks only with a divine voice lacks the authenticity that comes with human experience. So Islam and Mormonism, which are both based on a book supposedly dictated by angels, are unsatisfactory because their authority is supernaturally imposed on the human condition. On the other hand, a religion that is purely a construct of the human condition is merely a system of good works, religious techniques, or good ideas. Christian science or Unitarianism, for example, is developed from human understanding and natural goodness. As such, both lack a supernatural voice of authority. The Judeo-Christian story, however, is both human and divine. The voice of authority is always expressed through human experience and human history. Divine inspiration in the Judeo-Christian tradition is God's word spoken through human words. This incarnated form of authority finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who hands on his total incarnated authority to Peter and his successors. And then his conclusion is built upon the rock. Some churches may exercise some of the 12 traits, but only the Catholic Church is able to, fi- to field all 12 as a foundation for decision-making. When the Catholic Church pronounces on any difficult de- question, the response is historical but up-to-date. It is based on objective principles but applies to specific needs. The Church's authority transcends space and time, but it is relevant to a particular place and time. The response will be intellectually profound, but expressed in a way that is simple enough for anyone to apply. Finally, 
it will express truths that are embedded in the human experience but spring from divine inspiration. This authority works infallibly through the active ministry of the whole church. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that it is Christ who is infallible and he grants a measure of his infallibility to his body, the church. That infallibility is worked out through these 12 traits, but it is expressed most majestically and fully through Christ's minister of infallibility, one person, the rock on which the church is built, Peter and his successors.